In the song that David and Amy led us in just a moment ago, it um, has this scene in it. The declaration has been made that unto us a son is given. And then you can hear the, the artist reflecting upon that promise. A son. A son. And they say it again. A son. And I'm remembering being a, a father and um, for the first time with the firstborn coming soon. My wife is pregnant. I know what's coming. There's going to be a child and the child will be mine. And, and watching, going through the Pregnancy process as a couple together and, and then childbirth and the arrival, right? I've been telling people we're having a son. We're having a son. And then there he is. And the exclamation builds a son, right? He's here. He's come. In salvation history, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, The woman has been told there is one who is coming. There is a child who is coming. And the one that is coming will be redeemer, will be Messiah, will be savior. He'll be the one who rescues you from sin, death, and the devil. And the people, right, they remember this and they hear about it and they hear the promises in the covenants and they hear the promises of the prophets and they they know a Messiah is coming. And so they celebrate, they sing songs about it, they remember it, they have benedictions about the coming of the Messiah. And they know a Messiah's coming, right? A Messiah's coming. A Messiah's coming. And there's this Advent expectation throughout salvation history, Messiah's coming. And then the angels are heard on high, they announce the shepherds, and there in a manger lay a child, Right? And what child is this? It's the son. And there's an exclamation in the heavenly places and among the shepherds and among the the wise men who come and among Mary and Joseph and whoever gathered in that stable that day. And the exclamation is made. A son. Messiah is here. And yet there's this lull. There's this lull like, yes, The Messiah has come, but the exclamation that was in the song that we just heard has not yet been made. It's not until we see the nature of the child who has come. That he's not only the righteous son of David, not only the one who would sit on the throne, not only another in the line of the kings, he is the one who will reign forever and ever. And we don't see that until the resurrection. And then all of creation that has longed for the coming of the Son exclaim, A Son! The child has come, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. That's Advent, my friends. That is what we are observing together in these weeks. What I want to do is I want to take us back. I want to take us to 2 Samuel. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to situate ourselves in the middle of that longing. Somewhere in the middle of, for unto us a child will come. For unto us there will be one who reigns. 
Unto us there is coming a forever king. But we haven't yet seen him appear. This is where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll read together in just a moment. But right now what I want to do is just very briefly orient us within the scope of the series. We've seen Adam and Eve. We've seen the way that God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. We saw them in Genesis 2. We saw the fall by the time we get to Genesis 3. But we saw God make Adam and Eve in perfection. He created God's people in God's place under God's rule. He created a people for himself in his perfect place. And he established himself as their sovereign. And everything was very good. But right there in the middle of that place, under God's rule, Adam and Eve, God's people, rejected God's generous command and disobeyed the Lord. Adam and Eve, by rejecting the word of the Lord, lost their place in the kingdom and their position in God's place. And the sentence that was laid upon them was death. And that leads us to a a key place that really the remainder of our Advent series and the remainder of redemption history is situated with the question, is there any hope for condemned rebellious humanity? Is there any hope? Can they be restored as God's people in God's place under God's rule? And the answer is, Very quickly, we don't get past Genesis 3. The answer is yes. God immediately gives them a promise of hope and rescue. He promises his salvation. And the rest of the story lays out the question, will humanity trust in the Lord and in his salvation? You see, we only have a question. Is there any hope, Adam and Eve? Is there any hope for us, is it? Or are Adam and Eve and all who come after them forever and ever condemned, losing their place, condemned to death? We only have a question, but God has an answer. And his answer is yes, there is salvation. What remains is the question, will Adam and Eve and their children trust in the promise? Last week, Matt Hardy walked us through the history of a people that God had chosen for himself and through whom he would reveal his salvation. And what we see is Moses leading the people out of Egypt and and out of the land of their slavery. And from that place, we see them over and over. The answer is, yes, there is a salvation, but no, the people will not trust in him. People will not believe. The people will not walk in faith. They will not believe the promise. At every turn, just like their parents, Adam and Eve, the people reject the word of the Lord and follow after other gods, especially the gods of their own desires. Friends, in listening to the story last week, I hope you situated yourself in it. It's a long story, and it took a long time to tell. But I'll tell you what, my story of unfaithfulness takes a long time to tell. We are situated in that story. At the end of Moses' life, he does not enter into the land of promise because of his own disobedience, but God remains faithful and still provides the land of promise for the people. And the promise is that Joshua, Moses' successor, would enter into that land. And at the end of Joshua's life, in the midst of the land of God's promise, Joshua calls the people to trust in himself. And the people cry out, Joshua, you're spot on. 
Thank you for the call. We'll be faithful, they promise. And Joshua says, no, you won't. No, you won't. You won't be faithful. And they say, no, 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 Joshua, you don't know us. We'll be faithful to the Lord. We'll walk in faith to him. Joshua dies at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua. And immediately, as we move to the very next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, the people fail to follow God's command immediately. They fail to enter into the land of God's promise and expel the foreign gods that they find there, but rather live in a lot of coexistence with idolatry, not just living in its presence, but allowing it to enter in and to infect their own worship so that their own worship isn't worship any longer, but itself is idolatry. The foreign gods, they promised the people their heart's desires, but they robbed them of fellowship with their creator, worship of their God. And in the end, the foreign gods fulfilled none of their idolatrous promises. And that's the way the idols work. They make great promises, rob us of fellowship with God, and then in the end do not deliver, but leave us only death. But what we'll see today is that the Lord's promise of steadfast love and mercy continues right through the time of the judges and the people's unfaithfulness, the Lord remembers his promise, and he's faithful to it. Second Samuel chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 4 together. This is an interaction between Nathan, the prophet, David, the king, and the Lord's word to David through Nathan, the prophet. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house and dwell in it? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying... Why have you not built me a house to, of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, for your days are fulfilled and what you, and when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. God, we thank you that you have spoken. That you are not only there, you are also not silent, but have spoken. And the word of the Lord has established it. This promise that is before us today, I pray that we would hear that we would remember, that we would understand, and that we would enter into the promise the way that you demand, not with great promises of faithfulness, but rather simple, humble, confessing faith. Not a trust in works that we promise that we will do, but a trust in the works that you have promised to do and that by grace we have had the opportunity to see that you have done. I pray that you would work that by your word this morning in our midst as we remember. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to situate ourselves in this passage for a moment, in this passage leading to David and Solomon. We actually have to go back in history just a little bit to understand this passage. Matt Hardy led us up to the time of the judges of Israel last week. And our passage this morning mentions the time of the judges, the judges that the Lord had appointed, their leaders from among the people that God raises up in the midst of the people's rebellion and in the midst of their suffering. And he raises up the judges in order to rescue the people from their enemies. But the key is this, none of the judges were kings. To none of them was any promise of a dynasty given. To none of them was a kingdom established or any sort of righteous reign or rule. In fact, most of the judges are very complex characters. Many times the means of their rescue was far from righteous. They are not righteous kings at all. But rather the people were caught in a cycle of rebellion and foreign invasion, suffering and rescue by God from a new judge. And the people had become weary of this cycle. And they come up with an idea. Listen, the people come up with an idea by means of which they could rescue themselves from the cycle of rebellion and suffering under the hands of foreign kings. They come up with this. Sadly, their idea was not, what if we repented? What if we came to the Lord in humility and say, we keep breaking this whole thing? It was not to cry out to God to establish his rule over them again, but rather it was a cry that they would establish a rule for themselves. I want to take us back. We're not going to flip around a lot this morning, but this morning we do need to go over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. Start back at 4 even. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They have an idea. All the elders, they've got a great idea how to rescue themselves from the cycle of the judges and the persecution of the enemies and the rebellion of the people. They said, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. You see, Samuel was, ends up being the last of the judges and he's about to pass away. He was a good one, right? He he did many righteous things and he spoke on behalf of the Lord as a prophet and They see he's getting old and they don't want to go through that cycle all over again. So they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. The cycle continues, the Lord says. Nothing has been broken. It, it continues. A cycle of rebellion and disobedience. Rejection of the Lord and his word is continuing. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What a warning. The cycle isn't broken. The king is just going to lead you in much of the ways of your own rebellious hearts. These elders call for a king. Samuel says it's not a good idea. But the Lord says, go ahead. Give it to him. Give him what they desire. As they've done since Egypt, forsaking me and serving other gods, let them have their gods. Now in the time of Joshua, we saw how the people tried to establish a righteous kingdom by their own commitment their own self-righteousness, we'll get it right this time. Well, this time the people are like, we probably won't get it right, but what if we found a king who would get it right for us? We do that, people. To be honest, one of the ways that that takes place, I think, is in the church to this day. We know as the church, we're just going to be, you know, like churches are, filled with the mess that our lives are filled with, and so we appoint leaders. And we say, leader, we're going to hold you to a high standard, And you'll just sort of be righteous and know God and stuff and lead us for us. You can be our substitute. But it turns out that leaders are just like the people. And our lives are just as big of a mess. And just as much in need of a redeemer. The same thing happens here. Now, all of Israel's a mess. We're looking around. The others like, our houses are a wreck. And all the houses of all the people that were over are a wreck. What if we appointed a king and he'll lead us in righteousness? It doesn't work. The king's lives are a wreck as they have done since forsaking me and serving other gods, the Lord says. In the time of Samuel, they try to establish a righteous kingdom by finding a king from among themselves. That's key. They try to find righteousness again from among themselves. They will have salvation by a representative. They will have a sort of self-salvation by proxy. If they want a king, they can have a king, the Lord says. And so this is how God handles our sinful rebellion over and over again. He gives us the fruit of our rebellion, and the fruit of the rebellion is always death, and the fruit of the rebellion is to point us to the fact that our self-salvation doesn't work. Now let us skip forward to how Saul works out as a king. Saul winds up being the first king. He's the one that the people get, and they're so excited to get him. He's like head and shoulders above everybody else going to be a strong and mighty king, conquer the people. And he does. He does a pretty good job at conquering, but he doesn't follow after the command of the Lord, but rather rejects it. And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel 15, the Lord says this, for you have rejected the, I'm sorry, Samuel says this on behalf of the Lord to Saul, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So the great dynasty of the salvation of the people via a king lasts one king, basically about one battle. And then we come to David. David winds up being the replacement for Saul. 
Immediately as the Lord rejects Saul as king, the Lord anoints a young man. His name is David. He's to be king after Saul. And David is a man of God's own choosing. God has a plan for the salvation of the, of the people. And he's going to reveal it in his time, in his way. And he's chosen to reveal that plan through David. David becomes king up to this point in the story. As we are now in 2 Samuel again, back in chapter 7. Up to this point in the story, David's done a remarkable job. He's brought peace to the kingdom, and he's remained dependent upon the Lord. Up to this point, those of you who know the rest of the story, it's not always the case. David, now, having established peace, he's going to establish a place for the Lord, a temple. He says right at the beginning of the chapter that he's going to build a temple, a home for the Lord. He's built a palace for himself. Now it's time to make a house for God. And this is ultimately the Lord's will that the people would build a temple for himself in their midst. But what God is about to give to David before he allows David to move forward with that project, God is about to give a far greater promise than that the king would build a temple for the people. He's about to promise that the king will have a king who will ultimately be the forever king, a kingdom that will be without end, the presence of the Lord not in a temple, but as their king and God forever. That is the promise that God is giving to David, that he's revealing to him in this passage and in others. This is why our word passage this morning opens the way it does. It opens with David. He reminds God, reminding David that it is the Lord who took David out of the pasture. And David was following sheep and becomes a prince of the people Israel. He takes him from a humble place and the Lord works to give David a place. A place that's ultimately a place in the work of God in salvation history. God is not looking for some great act from David. He's not looking for some great service, some great worship from David. He is looking for David to remember where he came from. That it's not David who acts with great things in worship of the Lord. It is the Lord who acts and works great things. God is looking for David to have faith. He's giving him a promise so that David might walk in dependence upon the promise. He's looking for a people whose hope is the Lord. I wonder where Psalm 131 came from. I wonder if it came from a reorientation that takes place in David's heart after God comes to him in this passage. Psalm 131, a psalm of David says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Like a child who has received every provision he needs from his provider. O Israel, therefore, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You see, if we have been provided for, if we have promise and hope, what is our job? 
to do great things for the Lord, to act in great services and to appoint leaders to lead us in great worship, right? No, no, hope, hope. If the Lord has promised, the business of the people is to hope. It's for that reason that we have observed Advent. We have longed for the coming of Messiah and seeing that he has come and that he is risen and that he is ascended. We continue again in the observance of Advent because the business of the people, a people of promise in the return of Messiah, is hope. So this brings us to the Lord's promise, his covenant, the promise that would become the hope of Israel and all the people of God, the promise. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Verses 9 and 10, I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God is making a name for David. Now, David was going to make a name for himself. He was going to be the one who built the temple, right? David's temple. That's pretty cool. It's a good name. Who wouldn't want that if you were a king? What do kings do? They build great things so that after they're gone, people remember what they built. But God has a different plan. It's not going to be David's temple. But God is going to make great David's name, not by means of David's great work, but because of God's great promise. Friends, hear that, right? Our name does not become great. We do not become established. We do not hope. We are not redeemed. We are not saved by any effort of our own to do something to make ourselves great or saved or known. God comes to us and he makes promise and the people hope in him. From this point on, the rulers of the people will be called the sons of David. The people in the line of David. Why? Because David had great kids, right? (laughs) Grandpa David, the great king of Israel, the establisher of the great... No, because God made a promise. David, you'll always have a son on the throne. And so it is. And so David's name is great. And oh, how great does the name son of David become. Verse 11, the Lord promises... To David, a rule. He promises to him a kingdom. Look in the second half of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Interesting, right? What was David going to do? He was going to build a house for God. Because that's, you know, what kings do, right? The pharaohs did it, right? If you look around world history, all the kings of the earth have always done this, to build a great house for God. And God comes to David and says, no, you don't get to do that, but I'm going to build a house for you. It must come first. God will establish a kingdom. God will establish a dynasty. If we see this passage clearly, we see something essential about God's covenant. God's covenant works like this. God's covenant is God's work. God's covenant is the revelation of God's will and promise. And all of history is just seeing God fulfill his promise, watching him be faithful to what he has said he will do. 
central to God's will and God's promise. This is good news. He can promise anything, right? He has promised many things. But at the center of all of his promises is hope. Hope for a people who have no hope on their own. That's good news. He's God. He gets to promise whatever he wants. And here he promises to David a house and a people, a reign and a kingdom. God's will is for a people for himself in a place under his provision, under his glorious and gracious rule. That's good news. It's a good kind of promise. It's the sort of promise you might want to, you know, hope in. There's a wrinkle, though. There's a wrinkle in the passage. It's sitting there for us. It seems like good news, but it turns out that there's a condition. In verse 12, it's great news. You're going to establish a house for me. But verse 12 says, when your days, David... Are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Wait, 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 wait. You're going to build me a house, but I'm going to die? It's kind of like Moses, right? You're going to lead the people to the edge of the promised land, but I'm going to die on the outside of it? Is that how this works? Where's the hope here? I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. There's going to be a death. David is going to die. Is there anyone? Is there anyone who will reign forever? Or does David's son also get to live, become a king, have a kid, die, and then the kid reigns? Is this a, are we stuck in just a new cycle of kings? Is this how this works? Is there any hope? When will the cycle of death end? Look at verse 13. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom, forever. Forever. You can hear the note. It's forever, but it's cyclical. Does it have an end point? Is it focusing somewhere? Is there a great culmination? Is there any king who is righteous and will reign forever? You see, it's good news that there will be a dynasty. There's a good news that there will be a throne that will be established forever. No more chaos and so on. But here's the problem. What if the king who occupies the throne is unrighteous? What if he's a despot? What if he's a totalitarian, authoritarian, unrighteous ruler forever? What if the king is evil? What if he becomes a despot? What if he destroys the people as the foundation of his throne? For that reason, God makes another requirement. We actually see it over in 1 Kings in a parallel passage. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. David speaking, or God speaking to David. If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Friends, that's actually a good qualification. You see, there's a condition here to the promise. The promise is you get a a son on the throne forever, if the throne and the son who sits on it is a throne of righteousness. It's a kindness to the people to put this qualification in here so that there isn't, you can't remain forever and ever with a throne of unrighteousness, but God will put that throne down and end the line, right? The implication is clear. If the king walks in faithfulness, the king in the line of David will last forever. But if the king walks in unrighteousness, The line will end, and the kingdom will be ripped apart. King Solomon, 
It says that David would lie down with his fathers and his son would continue. That son is Solomon. King Solomon reiterates this. He remembers how this works. He remembers the way that David carried on that covenant on to him. Second Chronicles chapter 6 says, Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only. You see the condition? If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. There is a condition to the promise. Remind us that the condition is good. It's a guard against everlasting rule of a king who would rule his people in unrighteousness. Moreover, it's a guard against a king who would relieve the people in rebellion against the Lord God. So it's a good condition. On the other hand, the condition itself destroys the promise. Because the second you put a condition like that into the promise, we've seen the way this works. It didn't work for Moses. It didn't work for Joshua. It didn't work for the people who promised to be faithful. It didn't work for the judges. It doesn't work for Saul. It doesn't work for David if you continue to tell his story. It doesn't work for Solomon. Thanks for the promise. We appreciate the guard of the condition, but you may as well not have given it at all. There is no faithful king. There's no one who can fulfill this promise. None who are righteous. And so what we have is failure. We have a promise with a condition and failure. Solomon was far from faithful. The very first son in the dynasty, in 1 Kings chapter 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet, like period, right? That's the way the covenant reads. That's it. That's all he has to say. And God has kept covenant. Yet, because God remembers things and he says things and he has intentions with things. And his intentions is to restore God's people to God's place under God's rule. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. There's always a yet with God. Thank God. There's always a but God, that he has a plan. He has a steadfast love and mercy that remains in the midst of our disobedience. What happens after Solomon? Well, Solomon dies. He has a son. His name is Rehoboam. He's the next king. And the dude is remarkably arrogant and filled with pride. And he stands up against the counselors of his fathers. He finds new counsel, young counsel, immature counsel. And he begins to, to reign with a sort of despotism. All right? He is an unrighteous king. And what happens a man named Jeroboam, a servant in the household of Solomon, rebels against Rehoboam. The kingdom is torn into two. This is where we get the northern and the southern kingdom. God is faithful not to destroy Rehoboam, though. That's what should have happened. Just kill him. See to it that a new dynasty starts up. That's what happens in the north over and over again. But instead, God preserves a people, one of the tribes, to remain 
in the line, the dynasty of David. He's preserving something. He's preserving a dynasty. He's preserving a people. He's preserving a throne because he has a promise that he is going to fulfill of his own willful doing. David's reign carried with it a promise, a promise that his reign would be forever, but there was a condition of faithfulness, and the condition has not been maintained. The people abandoned quickly the way of the Lord. Again, the cycle continues. There will be, because God has ordained it, a forever king. But David's not him. Solomon's not him. Rehoboam's not him. And his child and his child and his child are not him. So we ask, will the cycle ever stop? Is there any hope for a people in the promises of God? Will, Will God finally just get fed up and reject the people? Will he abandon the plan of a people in his place under his rule? Go back to Samuel. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. It says, I will be to him a father. It's speaking of Solomon, but perhaps it's speaking of another. And he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Two words, discipline, yes, but not departing. That is the kind grace and work of God throughout history. Discipline, yes. Discipline like that of a son. He picks up the same theme in Hebrews. Discipline like that of a son, but not departing. And now enters history of salvation, a growing voice following David and Solomon and the kings. God raises up prophets in their midst. As that cycle is continuing, the prophets begin to give this voice. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many others begin to speak into the covenant made by God to David. And their word is the cycle is going to stop. There won't just be the cycle of unrighteous kings over and over forever and ever in the line of David. They remember God's promise of a king that will be forever. They remember God's promise of a righteous king. They hope for a king who will fulfill the conditions of the covenant. They hope for a king of faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's, you hear it? Like you've said it, you've read it, you've heard it sung before. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Friends, when I hear of kings or really any rulers and I hear that their government's going to increase forever, I'll tell you my guttural reaction. But when he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, when I hear the increase of his, this is big government. And it's good news. And it's forever getting bigger. And there will be no end. On the throne of David, there's that great name that God has made of his own will and desire. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever more. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. It's not the greatness of the will of men that will do it. It's not finally we get a king who gets his act together from among us. It's not the self-righteousness and pride of men. It's not that we finally found the right man to do the job, to show God that we can put forth a king. It's the zeal of the Lord who finally meets the condition of faithfulness and so establishes the kingdom of righteousness and peace. And we go back to 2 Samuel again, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Friends, when the prophets speak about the establishment of a government of peace and righteousness, they're speaking into that promise. The forever king, the forever throne, the forever kingdom of righteousness and peace. The covenant promise of righteousness and peace will finally be established only when God himself appears. You see, we don't look around and we finally find the dude. We finally find the leader. Oh, he's the one. It's not the way it works. We don't look around and find him among ourselves. God sends him to become like ourselves. And God himself appears. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's a fulfillment of an ancient promise. Jesus is that son. He's the king in the line of David, sent directly from God. God made flesh, and he fulfills the conditions of faithfulness. Jesus is the child that is born to establish the kingdom of David with justice and righteousness, and the zeal of the Lord has done this. We didn't finally figure out The Lord with his zeal over and over in steadfast love and covenant-keeping mercy zealously pursues his promise unto Christ. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever fulfilled, promise kept. We'll consider this in more detail next week when we look at Jesus, the forever king. But today, let us remember, he died. But though he died, he did not lie down to be with his fathers like David, but was raised by the Father, to take up his life in victory over the great enemy of sin and death. And he ascends and he's seated on the throne and he's not planning to step down, friends. He shall reign forever and ever. Jesus has broken the cycle of sin and rebellion and death. He's the end point. It's not an eternal circle any longer. Jesus is the end and the means. There will be no king after him. He'll reign forever and ever on the very throne of heaven. The Lord has made a house for himself. And the great joy is just like 
God comes to David and says, you thought you were going to make a house so you could come and hang out with me on the weekends? Well, I have chosen that I will come to you and make my house with you. Jesus ultimately fulfills that pattern. He comes and he makes a house out of us, his church, his house, his dwelling place. He as our head, our king, and our redeemer. This is the incarnation. The son has come to make us his house. The covenant is God's design for hope and promise. It's God's will. It's God's work. You and I both know our faithlessness. We know how we failed, how we've sought to establish our own kingdom according to our own desires. And then when we catch ourselves in in the mess that our desires make, we know what it's like to rise up in self-righteousness and say, I won't do it again. I'll break the cycle. I'll do better next time. And we know how that works out. And we gather this morning and remember and thank God that while his covenant promises discipline, it does. It promises discipline without departure. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us, for his kingdom is forever. And he has decided there would be a people in that kingdom. And that people are a people, not of self-righteousness, but a people of faith. The covenant comes with conditions that are both our responsibility to fulfill and beyond our faithfulness to ever fulfill it. Until the coming of the perfect son, David, Jesus the Messiah. This is why Jesus alone is the forever king and our means of redemption. He alone fulfills the conditions, the obligations. He's the perfect son and he is the righteous king. And that is why Jesus is our hope and our righteousness. So this morning is a call to faith and confidence in the promise, the reign of Jesus Christ. What happens when God makes a promise? What is the requirement of the people? Hope in the Lord. Is Christmas a season of hope? Yeah. But it's not because it's floating around in the air like pixie dust. Christmas is a season of hope because we've seen him. We've seen the Christ. We have the record of his revelation and his victory. We hope until he returns. Heavenly Father, you, your promise is the locus. It is the center of our hope. If there is any faithfulness that might arise, however momentary it is, it's because we've been transformed. We've We've seen what you have done, and we've come to love it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make out of us a people of hope, a people who walk in light of that hope. And when we do not walk in light of that hope, that we repent quickly of our wandering. Remember again the steadfast love and mercy of our God, the covenant-keeping grace of our King Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' Jesus, the King, in his name, amen.